to antisocial studies. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a really long time. Uh, yeah, it's been a few months since my last episode. Uh, just checking in. Has anything big happened around the world since March? Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah, it turns out that making a podcast for fun wasn't one of my top priorities during a global pandemic. And I, I'm honestly as surprised as you are. But uh, really, I'm sorry it's been such a long time. I needed a few months to figure out how to put my entire class online, get kids ready for an online at-home AP exam, work in the same house as my husband, and keep a three-year-old entertained with minimal Paw Patrol episodes. Uh, it was a lot, and I needed to take something off my plate, and I chose this podcast. But now I'm sort of ready to start making it again, and I'm excited. Uh, also, just yesterday, the president of the United States said that the Spanish flu probably ended World War II, so I just kind of felt a duty to my nation to start up the podcast again. This episode today, we have a global pandemic, a conservative president who wants to take things back to the way they used to be, a growing cultural divide between liberals drinking and dancing in the cities and conservatives who feel left behind, and an economy that's built on a house of cards. And no, this is not a current events episode. Today we're talking about the roaring 1920s, or does any of this sound a little familiar? This is Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's sort of go back in time. Okay, before I get into Act 1, I do just want to go off script a little bit and talk for like one minute about the Spanish flu, because it's become infinitely more important to our history knowledge in the last six months than it's ever been before. This is not a joke. In previous years, when I got to the Spanish flu uh, pandemic of 1918, before COVID, the way I taught it was I told kids, hey, remember in Twilight when Edward was dying in a hospital and then Carlisle made him a vampire? And they say yes. And I go, he was dying of the Spanish flu in 1918. And that was it. And I realize now the error of my ways and that maybe if I had taught it better, we wouldn't be in this mess. But just really quickly, um, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 was, it didn't cause the end of World War I, which is what I think the president meant. It actually originated, as far as we know, in Kansas on a military base. Um, the reason why we call it the Spanish flu is because we were in the midst of World War I, and so our government was censoring the media and didn't want to report on this kind of dangerous strain of the flu. They thought it would be bad for morale. Um, most other countries that were experiencing it as well didn't really report on it. However, Spain was not fighting in World War I, so their media was not censored. And so the first really public reports of it came out of Spain, and so we started calling it the Spanish flu. In reality, the first documented cases, as far as we know now, were from a military base in Kansas. Then when our soldiers in 1918 start flooding the Western Front, we take this strain of flu with us, and in the trenches is where it's able to essentially sit in the cesspool that was the Western Trench. Uh, it's with rats and trench foot and mud and all these terrible things, and it essentially mutates into a much, much more dangerous strain of the flu than it had been previously. Then the war ends in late 1918, and all the soldiers return home, and they kiss their wives, and they spread the flu all over the world. So that's really the connection between World War I and the Spanish flu pandemic. Um, one other thing to note, too, is that there's a whole new kind of field of kind of 1920s 
historians, one of my former teachers being one of them, who are starting to look into the question of to what extent was sort of the depravity and the depression, I mean, like kind of more moral depression than economic depression, sort of this kind of craze of the roaring 1920s, we all normally think of it as like a post-World War I thing, right? Oh, we just fought this kind of crazy pointless war. Let's all just drink and dance. But there's a new group of historians that are looking into to what extent was this really actually because we just suffered this global pandemic where up to 5% of the world's population just dropped dead. Uh, And I think that's super interesting. And I think it's something that we can all relate to is this feeling of kind of, well, what does it all even matter, right? If we've just gotten out of this crazy pandemic, um, I just want to go to a speakeasy and drink the night away. Uh, So anyway, I'll be interested to see as that history kind of unfolds over the next few years. But that's my quick aside on the Spanish flu pandemic. And now on to act one. one, return to normalcy. So after the chaos of the progressive era and World War I and really the Spanish flu, a lot of Americans are like, okay, we let women vote. That was cute. Now let's all just calm down and kind of go back to the way things were. There were a series of Republican presidents that were elected, starting with Warren Harding, who campaigned on the idea of a, quote, return to normalcy. And his campaign slogan was, checks notes, America first. Huh. But it makes sense. I mean, for almost all of American history, the country has been isolationist. Thanks, George, right? Uh, Sure, we got involved in Latin America, but that was just us Monroe doctrining. Like, typically, we stayed above the fray in European affairs. We've selectively followed George's advice. And Wilson had to get dragged into World War I, and most of the country agreed that we should just kind of go back to just focusing on ourselves and the economy and move away from more global affairs. And this idea was also supported by conservatives who were bristling under all the changes of the progressive era. And we're going to see this trend throughout the 20th and now the 21st centuries, a period of really liberal reforms followed by a rise of conservatism. I see you, Nixon, silent majority. We're going to you, Nixon. And I mean, really, it was easy and made sense for Republican presidents to just say, let's focus on the economy, because the economy was straight up crushing it in the 1920s. We entered World War I as a debtor nation, but by the end of the conflict, the Allies owed us $10 billion. Sweet! By the 1920s, we were the dominant economic power in the world, and we used that newfound influence to try to bring the rest of the world to our viewpoint of, war is bad, business is good. Throughout the 20s, we signed a series of international agreements meant to prevent military buildup and avoid future conflicts. Specifically, in the Kellogg-Briand Pact, 15 nations signed a treaty agreeing to abandon war altogether and settle all disputes peacefully. Oh, look at how sweet and naive we were in 1928. What a difference a year makes. Okay, so we were isolationist-ish. And really, our biggest focus was getting the Western economies of the world back up and running. And we did that by funding most of Germany's war debts. Remember from season one, how the Treaty of Versailles forced Germany to pay so much in war reparations that they basically just invited Hitler to come take them over and didn't pay off the debts until 2010? No? Just me? Cool. Well, the U.S. stepped in to try to prevent that from happening. American banks lent money to Germany so that they could pay back Britain and France, who in turn could pay us back and start buying our stuff again. It was a perfect plan. That is, unless American banks somehow just like suddenly fail overnight. (laughs) Anyway, 
So Warren Harding's Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, built a new economic policy that would become the foundation for modern Republican policy. It boiled down to three goals, balance the budget, reduce government debt, and cut taxes. This last part is crucial and controversial, and it's now known as supply-side economics. Basically, the idea is that if taxes are lower, businesses will have more money to invest in expansion and new jobs, and consumers will have more money to buy stuff. And we'll come back to this in a few episodes. Don't worry, Reagan. We're getting to you, too. By 1928, income tax for most Americans was just 0.5%, and it had dropped for the richest Americans from 73% to 25%. And what were people doing with those fat wallets? They were buying stuff. On the surface, the economy was booming. Per capita earnings grew 22% over the decade as work hours decreased. People had a growing disposable income that they spent on new mass-produced goods. Most famously, Ford lowered the cost of his Model T so that the car became a common purchase instead of a luxury item reserved for the rich. In fact, in 1925, about 80% of families who owned a car didn't have bathtubs with running water. Like, people wanted a Model T more than they wanted a bath. American innovation was also booming. Just 20 years after the Wright brothers first took flight, the Postal Service was carrying mail via planes, and Congress was investing federal money to build airports. In 1927, American Charles Lindbergh completed the first transatlantic solo flight, and by 1928, there were 48 different airlines serving 355 American cities. The radio industry grew and connected Americans culturally more than ever before. But even though the 1920s were mostly about economics, they weren't without political scandal either. (laughs) During Harding's presidency, many of his cabinet members became embroiled in many scandals, made worse by the fact that many of them were Harding's personal friends and allies from his state politics days, the Ohio Gang. And I'm really sorry, but that's like the least intimidating gang name of all time, the Ohio Gang. For example, the first ever head of Veterans Affairs, or the VA, was caught selling medical supplies meant for vet hospitals and keeping the money for himself. He literally stole from veterans' hospitals after a world war. Harding's attorney general accepted bribes from German agents trying to buy a company that had been seized during the war by the U.S. Like, we just fought the Germans in World War I, guys. Chill. But the most infamous political scandal in American history up to that point was the politely named Teapot Dome scandal. In 1922, Secretary of the Interior Albert Fall leased federal land that was supposed to be for U.S. Navy oil reserves to private companies in exchange for bribes. The Wall Street Journal broke the story, and the Senate investigation lasted throughout the decade. In 1929, Secretary Fall became the first cabinet secretary ever to go to prison. Oh, that's not a great first. Y'all, it's so hard to convince my students that the Teapot Dome scandal is a big deal now. Like, I feel like 2020 Americans look at Teapot Dome wistfully. Uh, Those quaint days when Americans were scandalized by politicians using their positions for personal gain. We were all so adorable back then. Warren Harding died near the end of his first term, and American outrage over the scandals was quelled by the dull, soothing nothingness that was his vice president, Calvin Coolidge. And now an ode to Calvin Coolidge. Oh, silent Cal, your biographer said you represented the, quote, genius of the average, which makes no sense and is the most backhanded burn of all time. Your Wikipedia page literally says that as vice president, you, quote, gave a number of unremarkable speeches around the country. 
with citations. What a weird president you were. You buzzed in your staff to the Oval Office and then hid behind the curtains while they looked for you. You won the presidency outright in 1924 by saying that the business of America is business, which, if true, is going to make America look pretty dumb in a few years. You were the epitome of a laissez-faire president, and you got out just in time to let Herbert Hoover take the fall. Well played, sir. Well played. Act 2. 1920s Culture So, I get it. I know that the real thing everyone cares about when we talk about the 1920s is the parties. Sequins, cocktails, feathers, headdresses, that Leonardo DiCaprio gif, fringe. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's right. The 1920s were in a lot of ways about a feeling. Young people had moved to the cities, everyone had cars and thus more freedom. We just fought a brutal war that no one really cared about, and now the government was telling us we couldn't drink alcohol. Yeah, (laughs) right. The epitome of this new freedom was the flapper. These female party animals were the culmination of a lot of historical developments over the past few decades. Women getting out into the workplace during World War I and now having their own spending money, plus a political voice through suffrage, plus more control over their body thanks to Margaret Sanger's work on birth control. For way more about that, check out my episode on abortion from season two. It's really interesting. And flappers are mostly identified through their clothing, dresses that show off their sexy calves, no corsets, a short bob haircut, and bright lipstick. Designers like Coco Chanel were at the forefront of modern fashion, especially with sportswear like tennis dresses that gave women freedom and a relaxed silhouette. Basically, tennis dresses were to the 1920s what yoga pants are to the 2020s. Ladies get it. In the arts, there was a flourishing of narratives about these new young liberated women. F. Scott Fitzgerald based his writings all on his real flapper wife, Zelda Fitzgerald, which that's like the most 1920s name of all time, Zelda. His most famous work, The Great Gatsby, has now become basically a stand-in for an entire decade. There was another writer that was important to promoting this new modern American culture, and her name was Lois Long. Writing under the pseudonym Lipstick, she was a flapper herself who wrote articles for The New Yorker chronicling her real-life adventures going out all night. Her column, When Nights Are Bold, and then Tables for Two, was often written immediately after an all-nighter, so she was basically the real-life Carrie Bradshaw of the 20s. Now, obviously the era of the flapper came to a crashing halt in 1929 when people needed less cocktails and more, you know, food, but we'll get there in a second. Okay, so remember the progressive era? Women got the right to vote, Teddy was a feminist, we tried to get kids out of factories, but the Supreme Court was like, no. So a few groups got left out of all of that progress. New immigrants and African Americans. And both of those groups start to take matters into their own hands in the 1920s. Now, I don't want to give the impression that all new immigrants became bootleggers because we already have enough of an unfounded complex in this country about immigration and crime, but... It is true that people who didn't have opportunities in the legitimate economy found a new way to rise up the socioeconomic ladder during the era of prohibition. So during the Civil War, soldiers would sneak liquor into camp in their boots, aka bootleggers. But during prohibition, bootlegging became an entire industry. Sneaking in alcohol from Canada or on ships overseas or just illegally brewing your own alcohol, an entire economy grew around this illicit industry. And this new economy was run by gangs, which really, to be clear, are just at this point kind of illegal business ventures that use violence and intimidation. 
Most famously, Al Capone became head of the Chicago Mafia, using violence and intimidation to drive out his rivals. And this era reached its climax in 1929 with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, when seven members of a rival mob run by Bugs Moran were machine-gunned by Capone's men dressed as police. I mean, there are entire podcasts out there dedicated to the 1920s mafia, so I'll leave the details to them, but I do really want us to understand these gangs in the context of history. Basically, these were people who were not allowed to become part of the legitimate economy. Many places refused to hire immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, especially Italy, and it was difficult for many men to find a way to make any money. So basically, discrimination and prohibition drove a lot of these communities into the black market. And I'm not saying that means they shouldn't be held responsible for crimes committed, but it's important to understand that the U.S. has a history of turning people we dislike or people we expect to be criminals into the very thing we feared. And that's called a self-fulfilling prophecy, kids. Anyway, moving on to the other, much more historically dispossessed group, African Americans really had a moment in the 1920s that they created for themselves. The 1920s are going to be a golden age of black culture known as the Harlem Renaissance. Throughout the last decade or so, hundreds of thousands of black Americans had been moving from the South up to cities to fill jobs in growing factories, especially during World War I. By the end of this so-called Great Migration, over 300,000 African Americans had left the South and ended up in cities like LA, Detroit, Chicago, and New York. And the Harlem neighborhood of New York became a global mecca for black artists, writers, and activists in the 1920s, and it was partly thanks to the work of our guy W.E.B. Du Bois. Using his influence in his newly founded NAACP, he and his peers created outlets for black people to show what they could do in spaces like the NAACP magazine, The Crisis. I mean, I could name hundreds of black creators who thrived during this time, but just a few highlights include female novelist Jessie Redmond Fawcett's 1924 novel, There Is Confusion. She explored the issue of black Americans finding an identity in white Manhattan. Uh, Jessie went on to work with Du Bois to found a magazine for black children so that they could read stories and see photos of their own experience. At the debut party for Fawcett's book, other black organizers used the event to connect black creators with white publishing elites. Out of that one party, many black writers began getting published in mainstream magazines like Harper's, and this includes Langston Hughes. So Hughes is kind of the poster child for the Harlem Renaissance. His poems have become the voice of the movement to find pride in blackness and to celebrate the contributions of black people to American culture. Let me just read to you arguably his most famous poem, I Too. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. It's better when Denzel Washington reads it, but whatever. Now, Langston Hughes was also gay. Although he was not publicly out, considering it was against the law and especially dangerous for a black man, he wrote poems about, quote, detectives from vice squads with weary, sadistic eyes spotting fairies. In another story, he wrote of an intelligent young man whose father was disappointed because he turned out to be a, quote, queer. And, I mean, a quick note about sorting out someone's sexuality as a historian. Like, some of this is historical speculation, but it's speculation based on a lot of documentation, including love letters written later on in his life. And I say this because I'm always hesitant to label someone from the past as something that they didn't label themselves. And this is especially important when I'm maybe in some ways like outing someone from history, which I don't want to do. But 
this secrecy and this kind of unwillingness to discuss someone's sexuality has led to LGBTQ people being suspiciously absent from our history. And I think it's more important for us to understand their contributions, even if it means that we have to put labels on someone from the past that they maybe didn't identify with fully. So whatever, rant over. In addition to writers, there were actors like Paul Robeson that gained mainstream fame during the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. Although he had a law degree, there were few opportunities for black lawyers, and so he became an actor instead, famously starring as Othello in London's West End. He became world famous for his rendition of Old Man River. My dad used to always sing this, Old Man River. He's like a crazy deep voice in the movie Showboat. Also, in terms of theater, in 1921, Shuffle Along debuted on Broadway, bringing Harlem musical reviews to a white audience. In fine art, Aaron Douglas adapted African art styles to paint the Black American experience, earning him the title, The Father of Black American Art. And I'll post some of my favorite paintings on my website. Like, teachers, they're an amazing teaching resource. They're full of history, these massive murals that, like, link the long American past to the current situation of Black people in the 1920s and 30s. It's really amazing for analysis, and they're just beautiful. But the most well-known contribution from Black culture is jazz. And like now, full disclosure, every year when I teach about this in my classroom, I bring in one of our music teachers who literally has a degree in this, like actually. So I can't explain it as well as she can, but essentially jazz and blues are the culmination of the Black experience in the United States. Many of the instruments, like the banjo and drums, are distinctly African. They were brought over by enslaved people, and they mixed with European-style big band sounds. Artists like Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller, and Duke Ellington played and composed music for big bands full of black musicians. Singers like Bessie Smith brought the blues into mainstream American music. Bessie Smith, also known as the Empress of the Blues, was famous around the world, but she died in the 1930s in a car accident. I mean, actually, she didn't die in the car accident. She died because the first ambulance to arrive at the scene was for the White Hospital, and they refused to take her. And it's an important reminder that although black artists are becoming recognized and respected for their talent around the country, racism is still alive and well. With this music, tap dancing became a common dance style for African Americans, and it's also a unique mixture of American history, actually African and Irish history. Enslaved Africans used music and dance to retain their heritage and to pass time on plantations. And often without drums or other percussive instruments, they used their feet to express the beats and the rhythms of their music. And with the migration of African-Americans into cities, this style mixed with jigs from new immigrants from Ireland. And fun fact, the Irish jig is also in itself a rebellious form of dance. When the English took over Ireland, they forbade them from practicing their Irish culture. With English officers roaming the streets in Ireland, people in pubs started dancing just from the waist down, their legs hidden from view behind the bar. The Irish jig with its rigid upper half and chaotic legs and feet was essentially a screw you to the English for trying to eliminate their culture. Anyway, these various dance forms melded in the cities to create modern tap dancing. And can I just say that I love that really, like, the most rebellious form of dance is tap dancing? The most famous tap dancer was Bill Bojangles Robinson, who became world famous when he tap danced up and down the staircase with Shirley Temple. Now, there was division and controversy within the Harlem Renaissance, just like any other movement, right? Black people are not a monolith. For one, there were generational divides between older activists like Du Bois and younger or more radical people within the movement. Zora Neale Hurston's literary magazine, FIRE, that's all caps with three exclamation points, 
It discussed issues that were taboo within most of society, including homosexuality. And then there were some African-Americans who felt like black artists were selling out and turning their culture into a commodity to be consumed by white audiences. I mean, it's easy to see where they came to this conclusion, right? Because while there were plenty of nightclubs in Harlem for black people to enjoy their own music, the most successful clubs were those that catered to white New Yorkers. The most famous of these was the Cotton Club. Get it? Cotton? Like slaves? And cotton's white? Ugh, yeah, real clever. The audience at the Cotton Club was entirely white, but the talent on stage was often the most respected black musicians of the day, most notably Duke Ellington. And the real question was whether this was selling out or a sign that black culture and thus black people were slowly becoming more accepted by general society. But I mean, there were divisions across the United States, not just within the black community. In fact, the 1920s was in many ways characterized by this massive cultural divide in our country that had been growing over the past few decades. 1920 was the first year in American history when more Americans lived in cities than in rural areas. By this point, the U.S. economy was industrialized, but that technology and progress hadn't reached many parts of the country. Those living in small towns were still essentially in the 19th century, and they often felt isolated and confused by the new growth and chaos of the cities. Many men marveled or were horrified by new liberated women. A famous comic strip showed common conversations between older people talking about the good old days of tradition and propriety, and it was ended with, them days are gone forever. <laughs> like, it's essentially the OK Boomer of the 1920s. Basically, they'll show some conversation about a guy being like, I want a wife who will obey me, and then people just laugh and say, haha, them days are gone forever. With cars, birth control, short skirts, speakeasies, all-night dance parties, the group that often felt the most left behind was evangelical Christians. And all of this came to a head in the famous Scopes trial of 1925, as famous lawyers debated back and forth over the merits of teaching evolution in science classrooms, Americans tuned in, often on new radios, to hear what was essentially a conversation between traditional Puritan America and modern progressivism. Clarence Darrow argued for the progressives against William Jennings Bryan, who represented the evangelicals. And the issue on trial was actually pretty simple. A high school biology teacher, John T. Scopes, taught evolution in his classroom, even though a Tennessee law declared that illegal. But that wasn't really the debate. I mean, he clearly broke the law. I mean, that was the point. Progressives wanted to shine a light on evangelical influence in politics, while evangelical Christians held on as they felt like so much of what they knew was being discarded in favor of modernity. In the end, the evangelicals won the battle but lost the war. Scopes was found guilty and fined, but his punishment was eventually thrown out. And the spectacle of the trial was politically really embarrassing for evangelical Christians who decided to kind of stay out of politics for about 50 years. Ooh, Phyllis Schleifley, Ronald Reagan foreshadowing. So the 1920s is really characterized by chaos and division and a cultural divide. It's characterized by people who've been at the bottom of the ladder, kind of clawing their way up in any way that they can, whether that's through illegal enterprise or using their artistic talents to kind of share their voice. It's a time when progressives want things to move faster. Conservatives are wanting to slow everything down. Um, but really, all of that discussion gets put on hold, you know, in 1929. three, economic collapse. Okay, I'm going to keep this last section short because it's confusing. 
Those of you out there who are experts on economics, you might just want to stop listening right now. It's going to be painful. But the big question we just need to answer is, how did we go from a roaring economy to the Great Depression seemingly overnight? So about that roaring economy. Uh, Sure, right? The overall economy was growing. People were moving to cities. Factories were making things cheaper. Wages were going down. Prices were going down. But there was so much growth and new technology that made production more efficient that supply outpaced demand. Manufacturing output rose by 32%, while wages only rose 8%. And people weren't saving their money anymore. They were spending it on those cheaper goods or gambling within the stock market. Like, the idea of stocks has been around for centuries. The first stock exchange was actually in Amsterdam in the 16th century. But by the 1920s, the stock exchange was booming because of a few developments. For one, credit was now a thing. People could get money on credit, buy stocks, and then pay it back with their winnings. Well, I mean earnings, but really. The trick was that credit became popular during a time when the stock market was growing exponentially every year. Like, it seemed like a sure thing that if you bought a stock, within a few months, its value would go up and you would make money. By 1929, Americans overall had effectively zero dollars in savings, but had invested one billion dollars in the stock market. I'm going to say that again. When you look at the American population overall... There was zero dollars in savings, but one billion dollars invested in the stock market. So people bought more and more stock on credit, taking out loans from the banks. And to make things worse, banks were also investing a lot of the money they had stored away in stocks and other risky investments. All of this was expedited by the fact that there was like zero regulation on the financial industries. Really, like if I wanted to start a bank, I would just get a building and set up a bank. People could give me their money for safekeeping, and I would keep it safe. Or I would use that money to loan out to other people with interest, or maybe use some of it to buy stocks myself. All of this would be totally fine unless everyone asked for their money back from the banks at the same time, but that would be insane, right? Anyway, while city dwellers were living it up, farmers had been struggling throughout the 1920s. During World War I, the government guaranteed prices for farmers providing crops for soldiers overseas, and with Europe at war, global demand skyrocketed. Farmers were making a ton of money, and they invested a lot of that money into new technology or more land. But unfortunately, after the war, when Harding returned everything to normalcy, that meant taking away all of those wartime supports. Farmers now had more land than they could farm, and they had bank payments for their new tractors or farm equipment. There was also a series of droughts throughout the decade that made their situation even worse, but, you know, I'm sure they'll be fine. Meanwhile, in Europe, Germany was struggling to pay back its war reparations. Right? Germany was drowning in debt as they tried to pay Britain and France back. Uh, The Allies themselves owed the U.S. over $10 billion. Our economy relied on a thriving economy in Western Europe, so we stepped in to help. We came up with what I mentioned before, the Dawes Plan. American banks would loan money to Germany. They would use that money to pay back Britain and France, who could then use that money to rebuild their economies and do more business with the United States. That would put money back into American banks, who could loan more money out to Europeans or Americans. All right, this is all happening at the same time. So back to the stock market. I don't know much about the stock market, but I know that sometimes it goes up and sometimes it goes down. Meaning, like, it, it can't keep going up forever. By the end of the 1920s, prices began to go down, as they just sort of had to at some point. But since so many people had bought their stocks with credit or loans, they kind of freaked out and they sold off their stocks really quickly, hoping to minimize their loss. 
But as those people sold their stocks, that caused stock prices to go down even more, which freaked out other investors. They sold off their stocks and the whole system basically imploded in October 1929 with the stock market crash. Now, I want to be clear. In 1929, only 10% of Americans owned stocks. So the stock market collapse itself was not the cause of the Great Depression. But the domino effect and the ill-informed responses by the government did lead to the Great Depression. If people had money in savings, then they went to get it from their banks so that they could pay off their lenders for the stocks that had gone bad. In addition, banks themselves had often invested in the market, and so they lost money. In some places, there were runs on the banks where everyone panicked and went to take their money out at once. Like, remember that dinky little bank that I made? I mean, I wouldn't have everyone's money just sitting there waiting for them. I was smart, right? I invested that money. I loaned it out. I lent money to individuals to buy stocks. I invested it. Long story short, the banks ran out of money, and some people literally lost their entire life savings in an instant. You go to the bank. You say, I'm supposed to have $3,000 in the bank, and they say, sorry, we don't have that money, and now you have zero. Again, this on its own didn't immediately cause a depression. There are things now that we know the government could have done that might have softened the blow. For example, the government could have stepped in and bailed out the banks, giving them money to stay afloat like Obama ended up doing in 2008. Or the government could have provided money directly to businesses to keep paying their workers, like the Trump administration has done during the pandemic. But in the 1920s, the idea of the government getting that involved in the economy was essentially unimaginable. And the only agency that could have maybe done something, the Federal Reserve or Fed that had been created by Wilson, they also panicked and they raised interest rates trying to protect their own assets and not lose the money in reserve that they had for this exact moment, right? I mean, the Fed had been created to take money and put it in reserve in case banks ever needed it. But like, it's not really their fault. If the Fed had given out all of its money to banks, it still wouldn't have been enough, right? I mean, they were created and prepared to save a few banks, not every bank in the country. But with banks going out of business or seriously weakened, they called in their loans, meaning they asked people to pay the loans back immediately. So this left small businesses owners ruined. In addition, they stopped loaning out more money, so the businesses that were still around couldn't get money to keep themselves going. And all of this led to unemployment, meaning that people now didn't have money to spend in retail stores, which then went out of business. Essentially, the entire economy just kind of ground to a halt. And it's easy to look back at this and get annoyed at everyone in the 1920s because in some ways they created the very problem they were trying to avoid, right? Basically, the economy keeps working if everyone just believes it's working. If everyone trusts the banks and the government, then they keep their money with them. And there would have been enough, I don't know, maybe to help out just those hit hard by the stock market crash. But that's easier said than done. The spiral that leads to the Great Depression is entirely understandable when you realize that every individual in business was acting entirely rationally and in their own best interest, but that led to the collapse of the system for everyone. Like, if you own stocks and the price starts going down, it makes sense that you would sell out of fear that you might lose more money. If you're a bank and everyone asks for their money back, it makes sense that you would call in all your outstanding loans to try to pay everyone back. If you're a business owner having to pay back loans, it makes sense you would fire your workers to cut costs. If you're newly unemployed, it makes sense that you would stop buying unnecessary consumer goods. But the unregulated economy and the hands-off approach of the government in the 1920s meant that no one was looking at the bigger picture. Oh, and by the way, remember how the entire European recovery process was built on American banks? Oops. The 1929 collapse spread around the world, especially Western Europe. 
but it's fine, right? I'm sure economic collapse and war-torn Germany won't have any world-ending consequences we'll need to worry about. <laughs> to be continued. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for sticking it out with me while I took a few months break for my own mental health. As always, please check out my website, antisocialstudies.org, for a transcript. And if you really like what I'm doing, please go join my Patreon um, at patreon.com slash antisocialstudies. You can join for just a dollar a month and get access to more teaching materials and lesson plans on my website. If you join for $3 a month or higher, you get access to everything else I post, which are special mini episodes that I do based on current events in the news. It's also just a really great way to support the stuff that I'm creating um, because I'm doing it all on my own in the corner of my dining room. Thank you so much for your support and see you next episode.